Hello and welcome. I am Molly McCann Sanders, and you are listening to my new podcast, Bravado. I want to thank everyone who used to listen to America's Moment and all of you who really encouraged me to bring the podcast back, which I'm, I am doing now. I want to also thank everyone who listened, liked, and shared the podcast, especially those who got on to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and gave this show a five-star rating and left some form of review, either or. It's not a, a huge deal, but I want to ask again if you would get onto whatever platform you listen to this podcast on and leave us a great review, a five-star rating. That really does help the podcast rise in the ranks and we can get uh, this message out to hopefully more and more Americans. And um, I do watch those stats and I, I'm very, I'm truly very grateful for them. Today, I want to talk about smart thermostats. And um, I don't know if a, lo- a lot of people in America have uh, smart meters, smart thermostats at this point. Not everyone does. It's starting to become a much more popular uh, thing in the United States. Uh, I had not really heard of them until this summer, and they kind of popped onto my radar screen because of a news story that came out in August or September. In August, Colorado experienced a significant heat wave, and a number of residents in Colorado who got their energy through a certain provider, I don't remember the name of the provider, they found on this day when the the temperature spiked that their thermostats were locked and were were cut off at, I don't know, 75 degrees or something. And uh, therefore their thermostats, their their cooling system was not able to keep up with the heat wave. A lot of them sweltered in 80 degree indoor heat until Mother Nature finally relented and things cooled off. And the reason this happened is because they these people had opted into a clause in their energy contract that said that the energy company, in the event of uh, some kind of a you know catastrophic, catastrophic natural disaster, could limit their power limit their energy. And one of the articles that I read interviewed a man who had opted into this, and of course they get a break on their monthly on their monthly bill for this exchange. He he kind of noted, I thought that meant like a real natural disaster, like an earthquake or a fire or a flood or something, not just, oh, this is a particularly hot day and the grid is under pressure. So a lot of people were were taken aback at how extreme the the real terms of this contract could be. So that's that's really when I kind of Smart smart thermostats came onto my radar in uh, in August, and I've been looking into them more now. For people who follow me on Instagram, you know that my apartment complex uh, right now is moving all of the units in my building over to these smart th- thermostats. And I had noticed I had gotten an email from the building, our building, right before they announced this change to smart meters. I had gotten an email from them announcing how great their um, a specific score. They had they had gotten four stars in the 2022 GRESB, which is Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark. And they were very proud of that. And I thought, well, that sounds an awful lot like ESG. And I did some Googling, and sure enough, that is the case. And you might wonder, how is a smart thermostat related to ESG uh, sustainability, i.e. related to the climate agenda. And if you listen to America's Moment, and if, frankly, if you're listening to this podcast now, I think we're all on the same page that the globalist climate agenda is a real problem facing our country and our world. So I did some research, and what I found was when I looked for smart thermostat stories, I didn't get a lot of returns on American news sites. 
but I was getting a lot of hits on United Kingdom news sites. And as is often the case, Europe and the United Kingdom, they're, a, a, they're always a few steps ahead of us in the whole tyranny game. And I, that's, I think that's just because America obviously is uh, the most free nation on earth. We are the greatest nation on earth in that department. And so we lag behind other Western nations that are slowly uh, that are slowly giving up their liberties um, to this to this tyranny and to, to globalism. So this battle in the United Kingdom has been going on for a while. In 2016, there was a concerted push to move households to smart thermostats. And uh, the champion against these smart thermostats is an unlikely individual. It's a labor member of parliament, i.e. more of a leftist, who supports climate ideology from my research and believes smart meters can help save the planet, but is also concerned about privacy. In 2016, this woman complained uh, to then Home Secretary Amber Rudd uh, complaining or wondering, asking questions, asking for government assurance on the privacy, the privacy concerns she had about the smart meters. Basically, she's saying, obviously, these smart meters are collecting an enormous amount of data about individual homes, how much you use your energy, what you're using your energy on. Those are private issues. And it's collecting all of that data. And she she wanted the government to explain how the, that data was going to remain private. And she was assured at that time that the, the data would only be between you, the consumer in the UK, and uh, the energy provider, and the government wouldn't have anything to do with it. This woman, this labor um, MP, again asked last year if uh, what the protections were. She's still concerned about it. Once again, she was assured, no problem. Everything's private. Everything's in your control. And then just Two months ago, on October 1st, the UK government very quietly announced that it would start collecting data from these smart meters. What a shock. What a shock. Um, and this is all part of uh, different different government initiatives they have right now to try to get their energy crisis under control. I'm sure everyone's aware that the United Kingdom, thanks to green climate policies, the war in Russia, uh, pardon me, the war in Ukraine with Russia, has a lot of energy issues right now. So although the data they are collecting will ostensibly redact the names of the people uh, they're collecting data on, it's still going to be pulling that information from the smart meters of these British homes and collecting them. And I think some of the things that they're going to collect are obviously your electricity consumption, your gas consumption, uh, data from each meter about things, frankly, I don't even understand all of them, your energization status, um, how much you know? How much you're using in what in what department? Energy tariffs. I mean, the things that this can be used for. The, the big the big picture on smart thermostats is ultimately, obviously, we know our governments want to control us. We saw that during COVID. They learned a lot from the COVID crisis, and now they need a new crisis by which to exercise more control. Climate is obviously the mega crisis they plan to use to submit. Western liberty to a global order. And a, a global order just means the very elite people get to live the high life and they get to decide how all of the serfs live. And the rest of us are supposed to kind of, we're supposed to go back almost to the Middle Ages. And that's really what this climate, it's de-industrialization, de if you really look at it. The whole climate agenda says you shouldn't, you shouldn't have 
You shouldn't have energy that you can rely on. Let's go back to solar and wind, things that we can't rely on. So that's why we're looking at the UK and they don't have enough energy. People in Germany have been cutting down trees to stockpile for winter because they're not sure they're going to be able to stay warm throughout the winter. I mean, this is a reversion to an earlier type of living, and it's a not not a good type of living. And we see the climate craziness in other areas too. Like now we're being told we should be eating bugs. Don't eat meat. Let's Let's make fake meat, um, but, you know, don't eat meat, eat bugs. If you think for a second that the global elite, i.e. the highest strata of wealth um, in all of these different Western nations, if you think they're going to be eating bugs and not the best grass-fed filet mignon, you're insane. Uh, so th- this is really, when I talk about the global the global elite or the global order, that's really just what I mean. This It's a stratification between the very, very wealthy who rule and all the rest of us serfs who maintain uh, the economy so they can live their lifestyle. And so climate is obviously the, the crisis, but to control large portions of people, you have to have, you have, to have data, you have to have information, and then you have to be able to, um, to coerce people. And what I see with the, the, the smart thermostats is that this is an excellent way for them to, to measure you know, every different kind of energy that you use and how you use it. It could be used to um, inform a social credit score. Uh, If you are a good, quote, steward of your energy, your social credit score goes up. If you're a bad steward of your energy, your social credit score goes down. Further down the road, I certainly could see them imposing, imposing just as they did in Colorado. Right now, it's it's up to you if you want to opt in, but ultimately, it could end up being mandatory. Does that sound crazy to you? We'll look back to COVID. There are all sorts of things that sounded crazy in March of 2020, and within a year, we're seeing them happen. In Europe, as opposed to here, we saw some really insane crackdowns on COVID policy. So don't think that anything is out of the realm of the possible with uh, with these energy initiatives. And we're already seeing, again, if you go to the UK and you Google smart thermostats, you're going to come up with articles that talk about how they're paying people now to limit their energy consumption, just very similar to what happened in Colorado. And there are even like government subsidies, I think, where if you con- if you contract with your energy provider to uh, let them limit your energy during certain hours, you'll get you'll always get this financial benefit. So first the carrot, then the stick. Right now they're paying people. Once they get enough people on this program and it's socially acceptable, then it'll just become a mandatory thing for the good of the planet. So I think that the United States, all of the Western world, maybe all of the world, is really enamored with uh, with tech. We love digitalization. We love all of these fancy uh, fancy programs. I have an uncle with a smart thermostat. We had a lot of laughs over the last holiday kind of playing around with it. Um, I get that they're kind of, they're fun to, it's fun to be able to um, use an app from a distance to to monitor things or to change a thermostat, etc. But let's, as Americans, it's really important to step back and look at it and say, how could this be used in the future? We, we can't close our eyes to the fact that there are bad people out there who want to bring about um, evil. They want to take away our liberty. They want to take away our freedom. And we need to be laser focused on climate because that, as I say, that's the next COVID. There's still 
COVID initiatives out there. I was just reading this morning about how there's a push um, for mask mandates again as we roll into winter. Boston parents are are claiming that they need masks for children in school as the flu season ramps up. I mean, so we're not fully done with the final contortions of COVID, but I hope for the most part we've beaten that, at least for the moment, as sort of a crisis that's taken away our liberty. But climate uh, is, as I say, very clearly the next one up, and we need to be fighting it. So in the United States, if you own a home, certainly I would suggest that you resist the smart thermostat. And uh, we need to kind of look around. I know that there are some states that specifically have it in the law that you can opt out of having a smart thermostat. And um, although it's not the primary crisis on our plate right now as we deal with election fraud and all sorts of other issues. Uh, it's something It's something to be aware of. Resist it if you can. If you've already switched over, consider trying to see if you can uh, flip back. And um, I'm not going to get into too much of what's going on with us at our apartment. There are other considerations that in our apartment, we're not just getting a smart meter, but they're changing our locks and stuff. So it's kind of complicated. I might have an update on that in the future. Um, but wh- wherever you can, try to resist this this global push to monitor us, to digitize and make everything monitorable. So it's, it's just it, we're just handing our freedom over to these people on a silver platter when we opt into every easy app that permits them to track our lives. And the idea that when people assure you, oh, it's going to be private, it's going to be private, it's not private. It's probably not private now. And at some point, They'll, you know, they'll take the mask off and admit, just as the United Kingdom just did on October 1st, that they are, in fact, monitoring it. Okay, so that's today's kind of headline news item. And the way I'm going to structure Bravado is very similar to the way I structured America's Moment, at least for the at least for the time being. We might change as time goes on, but it will start with uh, just the sort of headline thing I want to talk about. Then I want to give you some form of a legal update on some issue. And then we'll always close with with a mailbag, which I really enjoy. I think it's great to get your questions and kind of hear what you're thinking. And I enjoy answering those. Today's legal update is about Sidney Powell. Last year, Sidney was sanctioned by a Michigan judge for one of the cases that she had brought in that jurisdiction challenging the 2020 election. Not only was she sanctioned, but the judge recommended that the state bar look into her license, look into Sydney's license, and look into disbarring Sydney from the practice of law. Now, just to be clear, sanctions themselves are really, that's really intense. It's unusual to see sanctions. You really have to do something pretty asinine to be sanctioned these days in, in court. Uh, I mean, I've, I've practiced law and I've been a, a clerk. I, I've worked for a judge and I've seen a lot of cases come through, both as a clerk and in practice. And I will tell you, there are a lot of really frivolous lawsuits out there or just very, very badly done lawsuits. Uh, you know, terrible lawyering. I once saw a case where where the lawyer had literally just cut and pasted Supreme Court law like a from Supreme Court opinions, they had cut and pasted this and just at the start, like put a few um, case specific words. And at the end, it was just gibberish. You know, there are so many lawsuits that are brought these days. And um, from from 
talentless lawyers or lazy lawyers, and we don't sanction them. You know, maybe it's thrown out. There are all sorts of stages of litigation where there's an opportunity for the defendant to point out the problems with a lawsuit and get it thrown out of court. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you get sanctioned. So sanctions are a really big deal. The idea that the suit that Sydney brought with all of the accompanying affidavits that she didn't even have to attach to an opening complaint, uh, the idea that that would be sanctioned as frivolous and a waste of the court's time is in itself outrageous. The idea that the court would then suggest that Sydney should have her license removed, taken from her so that she can no longer practice law, is beyond outrageous. I mean, people, whether whether you like Sydney or not, whether you agreed with her election lawsuits or not, this should outrage you. There should be a universal exclamation, and um, th- this should be shut down. So last, I think it was just last week, Sydney's on appeal. She's appealing the sanctions in the Sixth Circuit, and I listened to the oral arguments just this week. Sydney did a wonderful job. She's a very gifted oral advocate. I think I think most people are aware that Sydney was a federal prosecutor for decades. She was the youngest federal prosecutor, at least at the time, in, I believe, the nation's history. I think she was 23 years old out in that, I think it was the Western District of Texas. And uh, she rose up in the ranks in the Western District of Texas in the appellate division. She led one of, I, sh- I, feel, I feel like I should know this, like... <laughs> down pat, but I can't quite remember. Just call it pregnancy brain. But she certainly led one of the divisions of, um, you know, one of Texas appellate divisions in federal court as an AUSA for the federal government. She was an AUSA for the federal government. She has done multiple, multiple, countless uh, oral arguments. Not a lot of lawyers can claim that. You know, she is an, an excellent and seasoned appellate attorney known by, you know, all Fifth Circuit judges. And uh, the, the idea that now after 40 years or more of practice, that somehow this lawsuit is both sanctionable and her license should be taken away, it just underscores that this is nothing less than or more than an, a, a political attack, a political attack on Sydney and a deliberate attempt to uh, chill, chill the work of other conservative attorneys. And I said a year ago, we need to stand up and, and defend Sydney a little more intensely not just a little, a lot more intensely, because it's not just Sydney they're going to come after. They're going to come after all conservative attorneys if they can get away with it with her. And sure enough, you'll note just in the last few months, Carrie Lake's lawyers were sanctioned in Arizona. Carrie Lake is is still battling out that debacle of an election. I think we all agree that what happened there looks very, very sketchy. And so she's brought a lawsuit. And bingo, her her lawyers have been sanctioned for, for, for one of the suits that they brought. And you know, this is going to very quickly metastasize, and and the purpose is to to see to it that we do not have good representation in court to fight the issues that we need to fight. the The sixty five project is an organization that was created for just this purpose, just this purpose. I think, if I recall correctly, when they were first created, they had like a blacklist, and they were getting the names of every lawyer who had worked for Trump in the administration. They were putting them on this list and saying, don't hire them. Don't hire them in big law. Don't hire them in medium, mid-level law. They shouldn't even have a job. They shouldn't be hired anywhere as an attorney. And if you hire them, you should be, society should frown on you as well for for working with such an attorney. I mean, this is, this is some crazy stuff. And as I say, the purpose is ultimately to make it so no good, competent attorney 
wants to deal with the hassle of possibly being sanctioned and or run the risk of having their license taken away from, you know, these state bars, most of them are are leftists. That's just that's just a reality. Even even Texas, apparently, um, as they go after Sydney's law license here as well. And it's just it's just important to remember every lawsuit has a winner and a loser. The idea that just because you come into court and you ultimately fail that you should be sanctioned and 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 your your license could be taken away is absolutely insane. It's absolutely insane. So um, I will keep an eye on this this case as it moves forward. And I'd like to try to write an article about it to kind of give you a little more detail on what happened with Sydney's case and why this is outrageous. But as I say, just look to Arizona. It's already spreading and it will accelerate because the left, they don't play around. They don't play by the rules. They are not men and women of honor. This is not a fair fight. They are going to try to defeat us in any way possible. And that includes taking away our legal counsel and our representation. You've probably read, I hope you've read some of these stories about how big law increasingly is becoming leftist and um, pro bono work is starting to dry up for conservative causes. In the last year, the um, very prestigious lawyer who does a lot of cases uh, at, in front of the Supreme Court for Second Amendment rights, he won a big Second Amendment case. And after that happened, his his massive law firm said, you have to choose. Either you stay here at our firm as a partner um, or you do Second Amendment cases, but you're not doing both. They had, de- they had determined to stop funding these pro bono Second Amendment cases. And that lawyer and another lawyer with him, they left the firm so that they can continue their Second Amendment litigation. But uh, the big law firms that, that make an enormous amount of money, they play a very important role in the American legal system donating pro bono hours. And it used to be that a conservative partner in a big law firm could could advocate and and take on pro bono cases for the right. Because, of course, a lot of the pro bono cases are on behalf of the left. But it used to be that at least if you if you found a conservative partner, you could get them to litigate for uh, issues on the right. And now we're starting to see it's not entirely dried up. I can think of some prominent examples of conservative partners in some big firms who are still litigating conservative cases. But you are increasingly going to see that squished out. I mean, we are losing our representation on multiple levels from from, you know, pro bono cases at the national level. And actually, I don't think that the Second Amendment case wasn't I don't think that was a pro bono case. Um, but but a lot of cases um, on important societal issues are pro bono and they're litigated via these massive firms that it can afford to do to bill bill hours for free, so to speak. Um, and so we're just we're being squeezed out more and more and more out of the elite legal community. And the elite legal community is important because often the elite legal community is also the very competent, you know, the very talented lawyers. So keep an eye on this. As I say, I'm going to try to write something on it. But Sydney being sanctioned, whether whether you like her or not, whether you agree with her 2020 election cases or not, this is an issue that affects all of us because it is a very, very slippery slope that we will see accelerate very quickly, and all of our rights are on the line. All right, let's roll into the third segment now with the mailbag. So I put a Q&A little stamp on my Instagram. My Instagram is at mal.mccann. And you can also DM me and send me, if you're not on Instagram, you can send me a question for the mailbag. And I've, I've gotten some of those before. But usually this is where I get the supermajority of my questions for the podcast. 
Okay, someone asks, what is being done about election integrity? Why won't the Supreme Court get involved? Well, the Supreme Court does doesn't just get involved. The Supreme Court obviously has to have a case or controversy presented to it, and then it would have to make its way up the chain. Uh, There's no doubt that the the Supreme Court wimped out and did not take some cases it could have taken. And uh, that's just the nature of the Supreme Court right now. They just don't like to get involved in election cases. They they absolutely judge the mood of the country and wouldn't want to be perceived as uh, flipping an election. Again, I've said it. I said it a lot on America's Moment. I'll say it a lot on now here on Bravado. We cannot rely on the courts to save us. Only we can save ourselves. It's grassroots action that will save America. And the court will ultimately respond. If there's, a, if there's an outpouring of grassroots action and activity, the courts will slowly respond to that societal shift. So what is being done about election integrity? Very frankly, not enough. I think, unfortunately, the midterms were proof of that. It's not like I'm not one of those people who thinks that the midterms just prove that our our message isn't selling. No, I think we have a real continuing problem with election integrity. And the the answer to that, I think, again, starts at the state level. We have to look to Florida. Florida changed its election laws since the 2020 election. They they really they already had fixed their election laws a lot after the Bush Gore debacle. So they've been operating more smoothly for for many years now. And then they and then uh, with DeSantis's leadership, they really came in and shored up some really important areas in the run up to the midterms. And they reaped those rewards. Also, I think they got a real influx of, obviously, of red voters from various states. But we need to, as as a grassroots, we need to look at that law and say, what did they do right? Say, what could have been better? And we need to draft model legislation and we need to get that across the country. Or if you want to feel a little less overwhelmed, uh, someone was pointing out to me, we it's not like we don't have to start with like the entire country. Just focus on the areas where we have problems. Focus on the swing states where the left is focusing and focus on places where we have uh, real problems. Arizona, Wisconsin, Georgia. You know, we need to we need to look at those states. Remember, Georgia passed an election integrity law after 2020 and they took an enormous amount of heat. They totally wimped out. They gutted the law. Whatever they passed, we knew at the time wasn't that good and we had we had the disaster there yet again that one would expect from such a weak failure of leadership on the part of the state legislature. So those are things, though, that we can influence. We have more influence over our state legislatures than we do over you know national Congress. So we need to get involved more on that. And I know that people want more concrete examples of how to get involved. And I'm going to be working on that here in the weeks and the months to come. So keep listening to Bravado and hopefully we'll have some real concrete ideas that um, all of us can jump in on and fight for our freedom. Someone says, we need a comprehensive list of non-woke companies we can do business with. Uh, I agree with that. If you don't have the app Public Square, Public SQ um, on the app, go download that now. It's an awesome app. You can You can kind of look in whatever area you want to look in um, to find people who are who agree with our values, and it's it's a it's a wonderful resource to start pivoting away from doing business with people who hate us, as as so many as so many conservatives point out. We have a long way to go in that department, but uh, any little bit counts. So 
if you know if you're interested in doing that, download that app, Public Square. Someone says, "What do you think of the Arizona mess and their voting machines?" Um, too convenient. I, I mean, I think we've just got to get away from these machines. I think it's very, very clear that we have, um, at least we have, we certainly have a crisis in confidence in our elections, and that alone can undermine a, uh, a free people, a, a, a system of government like ours. So just the fact that we have that crisis of confidence, that in itself is an issue. I do believe that there is an underlying corruption involved here and that our elections are neither free nor fair. And therefore, we, we have to, we have to solve that mess. And the and the place it starts, just like earlier in the show, we were talking about these smart thermostats and how too much that's digital is not necessarily a good thing. Voting is a perfect example of that. We need to get rid of the machines that absolutely can be hacked, that absolutely can have these malfunctions, that can be manipulated. We need to go to paper, hand-marked, hand-counted ballots. That's how it's been done for generations, and it worked really well. That's how it's done in other free countries in the world, and it works really well. Uh, What happened in Arizona is an absolute disgrace. You don't need me to tell you that. Every political commentator on earth has been saying that for the last month or more. But we we absolutely we need to do something about it now. Like the complaining needs to stop and we need to get down to brass tacks and say, how do we get rid of these machines and how do we move move to a more secure form of vote? And I will note the left, they're always several steps ahead of us. And I think that they see that machines are under an enormous amount of scrutiny that there's going to be increasing pressure to get rid of them. And you will note that the left is already starting to pivot and promote ranked choice voting. I'm very, very opposed to ranked choice voting. You should be too. We'll talk about that on a future show. That's a teaser. Someone says, at what point do we take up arms? I am uh, vehemently opposed to violence. And I think that it's really important for us to understand that freedom, the kind of freedom that we have, is a freedom we fight for every day. Uh, I think too many people approach our current crisis right now as something that we just need to fix as fast as possible so we can get back to life as normal. Uh, as As I've talked about before, I was raised in a very political family in a grassroots action environment. And my understanding of liberty, my understanding of how this country works is that it's a constant battle. It's a constant fight. You are always engaged on some level. That's how we stay free. Whether you're fighting uh, your, your school board or whether you're fighting on a state rep issue from local to national, we are always on. We always have to be engaged in the fight to stay free. There will always be people who want to take it from us. So don't people who are kind of looking for a fast fix or just are getting fed up with the struggle and just want it to quote, you know, all right, this isn't working. I guess we're just going to have to have a civil war. No, we do not want a civil war. We do not want violence. That is, I have a husband and three brothers. It it would not be pretty. The civil, we've already been through one civil war in this country and it was horrific. It was horrific. And at that time we had a very clear uh, fault line, you know, between the North and the South. So we had a border and we had um, we had sort of a combat zone and then, you know, where people were still where the women and children uh, were, were safe. Um, in, in America today, when you start talking about national conflict, you're talking about guerrilla warfare, you're talking about just horrific violence on, on a scale that, you know, I just cannot imagine. So I, I cannot encourage you enough not to even think in that in that vein and to focus on the very real tools that we have. If we put the same energy 
into actually using the the tools of liberty that we have, the government mechanisms that we still have our disposal to bring about a better government, uh, we'd solve the problem. If we put the same amount of energy into that that we put into, you know, hypothesizing about a civil war, I think we'd be in a, in a much better place. So let's let's not, as a movement, let's not go down that road. Let's not talk about violence. Let's not wonder about civil war. Let's stay focused on grassroots activism and understanding that this is something we'll do for the rest of our lives and that we're going to teach our children to do for the rest of their lives because it is something to be maintained, this kind of liberty. We maintain it generation to generation. Finally, I put this... Um, I put this Q&A box up before Trump uh, released his NFTs. And I know that if I put this question box up today, I would get people saying, what do you think of the NFT? So I'm just going to quickly um, address uh, my own question to myself. What do you think of Trump's NFTs? And I'm just going to say this right now. I have never been embarrassed by President Trump. Um, I think I can say that genuinely. I've never been embarrassed by President Trump his tweets, some of them can be clumsy. Some of the ways he he uh, speaks can be, you know, a little clumsy. And but you know, oftentimes when he when he tweets things, he's tweeting just what he's thinking, and uh, and a lot of times it's what other people are thinking as well. You know, it might not be if if you had if if you have a comms team around you saying you know, don't say that, say this, blah, blah, blah. Yes, it would be smoother and better. And there are some times when he says things that uh, you think, gosh, now we have to deal with that. And I wish we didn't have to deal, deal with that. But Trump is authentic. And that's part of his power. That's part of his charm. And it's part of what draws people to him. People can tell he's authentic. He's just tweeting what he thinks. And people like that. This NFT release is the first time I've ever genuinely just been embarrassed. I'm like, what is this? Um, we are in a very, very serious time in our movement, or the evolution of our movement um, in this survival of this country. I mean, for heaven's sake, last night, Tucker Carlson was talking about uh, reminding us yet again that we are on the brink of nuclear war with Russia. I mean, we we have a government that is literally hates us and is opposed to the best interests of the United States and is getting us closer and closer to nuclear annihilation. This is a serious time. Very, very frustrated to see Trump kind of engage in superhero NFTs. I'm, I'm not an NFT expert. I don't fully understand them. But what I do know is he has announced his candidacy for 2024. He is the leader still of our movement. And I want to see the same bold leadership that we got in 2016. We need him to be a leader, not to be, you know, joking around on, on playing cards, NFT playing cards. So whoever... Whoever suggested that and signed off on that on the Trump team, I hope that they are not in a senior position moving forward. I'll say that. All right. I think that wraps it up. This is, this has been the first episode of my new podcast, Bravado. Again, I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank everyone who encouraged me to come back to podcasting. I did miss it, and I'm very excited to be back. And I would, again, encourage and thank you in advance for getting on to whatever podcast platform you listen to and giving this um, a five-star rating if if you if you deem it deserves one and uh, a note if if you are so or if you're so inclined but that really does help the rating so I do appreciate it I'm Molly McCann Sanders and I will be back next week <laughs>